0: Everybody, welcome, Jonathan. Thanks again. Uh,
1: wow, that is bright, isn't it? Yeah, it makes you look good down here, fine. Little powder? Yeah, yeah, a little powder. If you hear any like ah, in the background, that's just my daughter Haley back there cheering for me while I'm up here for a second. <laughs> cool. Anyway, real quick, I do have some really great praise reports uh, this week. A friend that I've kind of known in the in the valley has been doing uh, student ministry for four and a half years at Bella Vista Campus. Her name is uh, Melanie, and her husband and Paul, they do a ministry down the road. Anyway, she uh, and I met because of Dean uh, opening, where's Dean anyway? Anyway, somewhere he's, I can't see anybody right now. Yeah, so he opened his mouth and told her about me, and she said, who, Jonathan? And so anyway, her mom's ill, so we want to keep Melanie's mom in in mind and, and pray for her. But she basically said, here's a a four-and-a-half-year program. I have 60 students. Here's the keys. So on Monday, the the doors have been open for me to go in and teach at Bella Vista, the um, Bible club there. And Yeah, amen. And then on on Wednesdays, um, I'm working with uh, the Good News Club at the charter school um, with another teacher there. So I'm on two campuses this week. Uh, starting this week to um, be able to reach kids. And then we launched on February 5th our youth group. So that's 90 to 100 kids throughout the week, plus our student ministry. I don't know if you guys are cool with this, but we might wreck this on Wednesdays. We might not be able to fit <laughs> over there. Pastor that's said fine. I could, but I put it all back. Yeah, just put it back. All right. So God bless you. Thanks for your support and prayers. Thanks. Uh,
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're heading out. We'll see you. On the way to the student room. Hey, um, I just want to give some other, uh, I guess, family charge to us. Um, I don't know about you, but I got my eye on Easter already. You're going like, What? That's what pastors do, you know, we sort of, you know, here's the next season, the next run, we're into the January, March, you know, February's next week kind of deal. And I want to share with you as we're doing some, you know, we're going to do some changes to the building and we're really encouraged about some of the teaching and some of the other kind of stuff that God really wants us to get into. But um, I really want us to become a muscle of outreach for us to be able to invite our friends and our relatives and our neighbors and to join into a catalytic experience on a Sunday morning. Now, as we've shared before in the last couple, three months since I came in November, my heart is for what happens during the week. And we're going to continue to try to mobilize that and, and try to wrestle with that with elders. And so we want to uh, be able to just come together as a family. There's going to be some rebranding and renaming. It probably happens in, in uh, March. Uh, we told you about that. We're looking then at being able to get the renovations done. But... You know, you can do all those things, and it doesn't mean anything unless the Spirit of God and the presence of the Lord is active where you're at. And that comes not just through our worship time and not just through teaching. It comes through us as a community of people on a Sunday morning. And so I'm going to ask you to prepare your hearts before you come, because you are ministers on Sunday morning. Even if you're sort of new, guess what? You could encourage somebody today. And so a lot of times you don't think about this, you come as a spectator, that doesn't happen. You come to engage with the Lord, to learn from Him, but to be able to encourage. In fact, some people may not get a touch on a Sunday morning unless you reach out and encourage them. And God could use you to do that. And so I want to encourage us to focus on the three meetings that happen on a Sunday. Do you know that there's three meetings? I'm not talking two services. There's three meetings that happen. There's the meeting before the meeting, there's the meeting, and then there's the meeting after the meeting. Did you know that? And some of you missed two of the three because you just sort of come in, here's worship, boom, we're out. Well, I tell you what, come early with a prepared heart to see who God would maybe encourage you and hang around a little bit afterwards. It would mean the world. And I want you to do um, a, a couple of things in particular here today. But um, that name tag that some of you are wearing, good job. I know that it's weird, it's hard to name, and I don't want to put a name tag on, but it just helps with some of the awkwardness of getting to know one another when you see a name, right? Except I called somebody by their name this morning, and the person had written down the wrong name or a nickname to it, and I said, can I call you by that nickname? Well, I guess, sure, right, kind of deal. But it helps us be able to get to know one another, especially when it's like, I know that person, or I met them before, and now I'm going to look stupid, that kind of deal. The name tags help us. Um, be able to I think just be a community so when you come get a name tag on the guys up the team up front probably doesn't usually have them because of it just cleaner look I guess but make sure that you get a name tag and you come early with that and today in particular actually next couple days we're don't do something that's going to help behind the scenes a little bit and that is uh, we have uh, bought into a new um, web-based online community database program called Church Community Builders CCB but you'll just sort of know it as the online community and the community communication card that each of you have, if you'll take that out. In particular, for the next three weeks, I want everybody to fill this out just to get back into the habit, the routine. It helps us as we sort of receive names. And uh, so if the message starts to go off in a direction you're like not connecting with, just spend time filling out your card really well this morning (laughs) and print legibly. Um, Our administrative support Susan would tell you that. I'm amazed by people that fill it out and they don't No, you can't read what they said. So clearly print out your information because we wanna get this fresh new database online community thing up and running. If you need a pencil or a pen to fill out that communication card, there's ushers that are passing those out, just raise your hand. I wanna make sure everybody fills one of those out not only this week, but for the next couple, three weeks in particular, so that we can get this thing launched well with appropriate, clear information. Now, once it goes online, you'll be able to update your information. You'll be able to opt in and opt down of groups. We'll be able to communicate clearly. You'll actually be able to get online and see where your giving's at, that kind of stuff. But um, I'm just really pleased about us being able to step into this new system, uh, CCB, and this is a part of it for us to get clear information. So come to the three meetings, the meeting before the meeting, the meeting and the meeting after the meeting, fully engage and uh, be a part of the community because God's going to use you on Sunday mornings as we move through uh, these weeks headed towards Easter, believe it or not. So I'm going to give you some practice on that. So if you can stand up and you find somebody uh, that you don't know, uh, we are going to uh, go from there. Thanks. Um, I want to make mention that we're also instituting a new rule on Sunday mornings. It's called the, um, that is really not going to flip around on me. Um, We are calling it the three-minute rule. So for the first three minutes after service is over, we normally go to connect with somebody that we already know because we haven't seen them in a whole week, right? Well, for the first three minutes, go find somebody you don't know. And the name tags help with all that. The meeting after the meeting concept helps with all that. So you just did a great job. Uh, engaging in that, but uh, maybe you can catch up with someone afterwards that you just even greeted now. But if we have that mindset, uh, I think that will help us continue just to get to know one another and be a part of a broader community and not fall into what we don't like our kids to fall into, which are cliques, right? Let me pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we uh, come before you to acknowledge our dependence upon you to hear and to understand truth. And Lord, uh, this morning's talk uh, is not one of those that's a light one. And so I ask that you would help us to understand it in the context that the Spirit would desire for us to understand it as it relates to our personal life and as it relates to your mission in this world. So Lord, we center ourselves before you. May you teach. Lord, if there's anything I'd say that's not of you, may it be soon forgotten. But Lord, if it's of you and you desire for it, To be heard for us as a body and as individuals, may you brand it on our heart today. So, Lord Jesus, we offer ourselves to you. May you speak truth in our lives. Amen. Amen. Well, last week I began a message series that is entitled Alive in Christ. And I want to just give reference that we're going to be journeying through this in the next few weeks. And I'm really asking God to give us direction in it because I think he's wanting to teach us afresh and anew about his active ministry work in our world and how we're engaged in it. Last week we talked some about from death to life. We looked in particular at uh, Romans 1, which is really a tough passage. We're going to be going back to that some today. But we talked about going from death to life last week, and today I want to talk about uh, then moving by grace through faith into a place that we come alive. Now, what is the most important? famous hymn with the word grace in it. Will you
2: sing that with me? Here we go. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I am found. T'was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first be Let's
0: hold those lyrics up there for just a second. Why is this that this hymn is so well known and is an endeared hymn by so many people, even those who would not claim to have a Christian faith? Why do you think that is? I think there's a couple reasons. One is because we all want grace in our lives. We don't like to be dealt with harshly. And so we like to be given a little slack, a little grace. And then we start to comprehend what God did for us. It truly is amazing. And so it's been passed down from one generation to the next. And we're endeared to this hymn of the faith, amazing grace. But I tell you what, to understand grace, you have to understand something else that the hymn writer placed in here. And that is we have to understand lostness. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Well, guess what? You really get excited about God's grace when you understand how deeply embedded the lostness is in your very being. Do you like to be lost? What do you do when you're lost? Men. I'm going to figure this out, right? Now we got the smartphone thing going and the GPS. But if you're like me, I'm one of these guys saying, hey, I think I've got a feel for this. I think it's this direction. I get really bothered if I lose my sense of east, west, north, and south. My wife is like, that must be a farm thing or whatever, because I give directions according east, west, north, and south. South. Being out with these mountains, it's a little bit different, so I have to get a little bit of bearings, right? But I like to know my sense of where I'm at and where I'm going, and I don't want to admit that I'm lost. But when you're lost, it's, it's not a good thing. And whether it's lost uh, geographically, all right, or maybe it's just lost in life, period, lostness is a daunting thing. But the good news, and the good news we share today, is that if you understand lostness, then you can be found. If you understand that you have a need, then the amazing grace of God can come and be applied like a balm into that need. But if we don't deal with lostness then we don't rightly deal with grace in being found. And so I want to camp there again this morning, as I did last week, on the reality of who we are as human beings. Men, women, students, children, whatever. We are lost people. I want to give an appropriate diagnosis. When you go to um, the doctor and there's something significant that starts to emerge... Of a health concern you want to know exactly what it is why because you want to be treated you want to know what's wrong with some ailment or my goodness if you had cancer or something like that you want to know why so you could get chemo get some other kind of therapy if you've got issues with your back I talked to a couple people this morning already that had some back surgery just in the last few weeks you want to know where it's at that's wrong so they get it right because you don't want to mess up the rest of the back right you need a healthy diagnosis from the doctor in order to get the prescription or, the, or the, the, the medical breakthrough or the surgery that's needed to correct it. So also, when you take your car to a mechanic, you don't want that mechanic going, oh, I think it might be a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I don't know. I think I'll send my guy to work on that for a couple hours. No! Figure out what's wrong with it because I don't want a lot of hours billed to me, right? You want there to be diagnostic tests that say, this is what's the trouble with this car. Well, why isn't that with human beings? Why do we sort of ignore this idea that there's something wrong with the human body? I'm not talking the physical body, the essence of the soul. Oh, everybody's good. Everybody's fine. We're okay. Think the best of people. Well, I do want to think the best of people, and I normally do, but I also want to be realistic. Right? They say defining reality is the first step towards progress, right? So let's define reality, especially because the more we understand reality, I think the more we just get bowled over by God's grace and understanding of who He is and what He's doing in our world. I want to go to a passage of Scripture, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1, says this, As for you, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to Christians around the uh, area of Ephesus, and uh, this letter is being circulated, and so he's writing to people who have discovered the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So it's a past tense kind of dealing he's doing. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our (laughs) sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Oh, there's that heavy word again. Objects of wrath. What does that mean? That means God's settled hostility towards all that is wrong towards all that is sin. God is perfect. He is holy. He is just. You want to be blown away with the richness of goodness that it's embedded in the creator of the world. And He cannot deal with the brokenness and fallenness. He gave mankind the freedom to choose and mankind chose sin, right? In Adam. And so in Adam all die. So sin has come in and invaded the very essence of a human being. And if you want to do the diagnosis, here's the diagnosis Paul gives it, you're dead. You're dead in your transgressions and sins. But thankfully, he's saying in the way you used to live. And so then he goes on, and we'll be talking about by grace through faith in a second. But we have to give recognition to this, and we have to own it as our own individual selves. But we also have to realize this is the condition of the world around us. And strikingly, this is the condition of some of the people that you're trying to help right now in life. And maybe you're new here this morning. And it's like, well, it's sort of heavy here. I'm gonna come in. The guy's preaching that I'm a sinner. Yeah, you're right. You're a sinner. But guess what? Scripture says we're all sinners. And it's better to get the diagnosis so we can get on with the change sooner rather than later. I believe, though, for us to really be mobilized as a church, for us to be mobilized in our lives as individuals, it's important for us To get a definition, an understanding of this, because if we are mobilized to help and encourage others merely on a sense of goodwill, it will run its course. But if we have a deeper conviction about the condition of where mankind is at, it will endear us to other people. It will endear us to even some of our own fallenness and how we sort of stumble uh, in our own life. And we won't find ourselves with false guilt, we'll find ourselves with true guilt. But when you find yourself with the true guilt, then you understand that you have a Savior to go to. There's three things I want to pull out in this passage in particular that we're up against. The world, the flesh, and the devil. It's sort of sometimes called the other dark side trinity. But they're embedded in here. You used to be dead in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world, the mindset of the world is pressing you and pressing your friends, pressing your relatives, pressing the lost overseas into a certain mindset. Anna, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit now at work in those disobedient. I don't know if you believe in the devil or not. I do. His name was Lucifer. He was a fallen archangel. He had A bunch of fallen angels came with him. And he wreaks havoc on this earth. He's not the opposite of God because he's not omniscient, all-powerful, or anything like that. He's a created being. But for whatever reason, he stepped outside of wanting to be the worshiper of God, and he was cast to this earth. And there is an adversary, friends, that seeks to wreak havoc in your life and mine. The devil. We'll talk about that more somewhere down in the future. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. I reference that as flesh. Flesh is the sinful nature. It's that bent that says, me, me, me. Have you ever thought why a child just doesn't grow up to be a perfect child when you take hands off and leave them alone? Why is that? Well, your cute little darling has a sinful nature. Now, that's probably encouraging sometimes when you go, what is wrong with this kid? Right? Well, they have a sinful nature. We're all... You know, it's more than just self-preservation kind of deal. We end up realizing early on that it's a root of self-centeredness that we're up against, not in our own life, but with all people's lives. And so that sinful bent, the cravings of the sinful nature, the desires and the thoughts, it's there. it goes back to Adam and Eve, when Adam fell in the garden, right? He chose, and Eve chose to go against what God's leadership was. So they chose for self, and God gave us, in our created essence, the ability to choose. And so that bent is there. Thankfully, in Christ, the second Adam, we can be saved by grace through faith. But we have to reckon with this condition in which we find ourselves. G.K. Chesterton, a famous philosopher, or theologian, uh, He uh, read some articles one time of a gentleman uh, who wrote about what's wrong with the world. And so G.K. Chesterton sent uh, a letter back to the editor, and it was probably something that the editor had to reread a couple times. He goes, is this really real? But G.K. Chesterton said this. He says, dear sir, in reference to your article, what's wrong with the world? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I'm what's wrong with the world. What you see in the world and the decadence and the spirit, it goes back to the root. And the root goes back to there's something almost evil or demonic within the heart of individuals, and we don't want to name it that way, that is bent towards the good things that God would so intend and that our mind and our hearts would say, Well, shouldn't there be something more of that nature? In fact I like what um John Stott said in a book called Basic Christianity on the Sinfulness of Mankind. He was a a great pastor, theologian, and and he wrote uh, this 50 years ago. Listen to this. It's quite lengthy, but it describes the world in which we live. He says this, The history of the last hundred years or so convinced many people that the problem of evil is located in human beings themselves, not merely in human society. The 19th century saw a flourishing of liberal optimism. It was widely believed that human nature was fundamentally good, that evil was largely caused by ignorance and bad housing, and that education and social reform would enable people to live together in happiness and goodwill. But this illusion has been shattered by the hard facts of history. Educational opportunities have spread rapidly throughout the world, and many welfare states have been created. But our human capacity to get it wrong seems undaunted. The persistence of conflict on the world stage and the widespread denial of human rights, together with the general increase of violence and crime, have forced forced thoughtful people to acknowledge that a hardcore selfishness exists in each and every one of us. He goes on to say this. Again, this was 50 years ago. Much that we take for granted in a civilized society is actually based on the assumption of human sin. Nearly all legislation has grown out of becoming has grown up because we simply cannot be trusted to settle our disputes with justice and without self-interest. A promise is not enough. We need a contract. Doors are not enough. We have to lock and bolt them. The payment of fares is not enough. Tickets have to be issued, inspected, and collected. Law and order are not enough. We need the police to enforce them. All this is due to our sin." We cannot trust each other. We need protection against one another. It is a terrible indication of what the human nature is really like. Agree? Think about it. I try to be a student, not only of scriptures, but the student of our world. Why is it that someone just showed up in a mall this week and shot people? Right? Where does that kind of evil Come from. There is something wrong within the heart of a person, and the Bible defines it as sin. S I N, sin. And if we're ever going to experience God's amazing grace and continue to be impassioned to share His amazing grace, we've got to deal with lostness and the reality that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. The word sin in the scripture, it's a couple definitions for it that it comes from. One is to miss the mark, like. Um, a sharpshooter with a bow and an arrow, and he has a target to hit. We know what's right, but woo, it goes off in the wrong direction. We missed the target. Missing the mark is sin. Another is stepping outside the boundaries of what we know is right. You know that this area is healthy and this area is good, but you willingly choose to step outside of that safe boundary or that boundary of what is right. And so sometimes sin is an ugly word to us, but I want to take it a little bit more in the context of let it just be um, a descriptive word of reality. It's not like, oh, I don't want to talk about sin. Well, no, sin is missing the mark. It's outside the boundaries. It's not doing what God called us to do, what his perfect intent and his will is. And scripture says what? All of us have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. So we're all in the same boat. We can't today put the sinners on one side and put the saints on the other side. Here's the reality is we are all sinners. Now some of us have been able to receive that amazing grace through faith in what Christ has done. And that's what mobilizes us to do the ministry at hand. But we have to reckon with the condition, the condition of the heart. The story is told of a little girl by the name of Mary. And her mother uh, was going to celebrate her fifth birthday by inviting in many relatives And some of them were rich relatives. And she wanted Mary to make a good impression on her relatives, especially the rich ones. So she said, Mary, halfway through the birthday party, I'm going to ask you to sing a song. And so I want you to come out and I want you to sing your song. And I want you to look to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and and -and and sing it with sincerity and let your eyes get moistened and speaking because these are important people in your
2: life, right?
0: And so she got her little five-year-old all dressed up in pink and everything and halfway through... The birthday party, she brings her out in front and with everybody around, and she says, Now, Mary, weren't you going to do something for us? She said, No. Nope. <laughs> she says, Well, no, weren't weren't, weren't you planning to do some of the all of us? Nope. She finds a little convenient place to pinch her and she says, Well, weren't you going to sing a song for all of us, Mary? No. Nope. And her mom deeply not only disappointed, but embarrassed, she takes little Mary upstairs into the master bedroom closet and she says, now you stay in here and you think about this and when you're ready to come down and you sing, to sing that song, you can come down. Okay? So mom left about 15, 20 minutes later. She goes up and there's Mary sitting quite comfortably in the closet. And she says, well, are you ready to sing? Nope. You're not? Well, what have you been doing? And she says, well... I've been spitting on your clothes. I've been spitting in your shoes. I've been spitting on the walls. And I've been spitting on your carpet. In fact, when you came in, I was just waiting to get some more spit. (laughs) Now, I share that story with you because this whole issue of sin, we define it many times as actions. But it's really not an action. An action is a product of an attitude. Just waiting for some more spit. Is what we do in the face of God when we say no. And so we have to reckon with this condition, and the condition goes way back before any action. It goes back towards an attitude, an attitude of indifference towards God, or an attitude of I don't want to follow after God. That condition is lostness it is lostness and it abides not only in your life and in your friend's life and in this valley it's a condition for every human being that walks or has walked on this earth for man sin is not just an act it is an attitude man is not a sinner because he's a man is not a sinner because he is a transgressor but he is a transgressor because he is a sinner now catch me with that An apple tree is an apple tree. Not because it produces apples, but because it is an apple tree. You are a sinner. Thus, you will transgress. We don't get labeled that because we happen to fall in sin. It goes back to our created essence, fallen as it is. And we have to reckon with that in a deep and sobering, somber kind of way that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. You know, the Sermon on the Mount deals with this aspect of it being an attitude and not just an action, in that lust is adultery even if it does not pass beyond the look of desire. Anger is murder even if blood is not spilt. And materialism is lust of the eyes even if someone is not rich. So identify it. It's there. It's in your life. It's in your friend's life. It's in your enemy's life. The second aspect of this whole sin thing is that it's not just that it's an attitude before it's an action, but that each of us sort of define sin differently according to what we're prone to fall into. The story is told of two hooligans that were twins, and they were evil, rampant brothers causing a lot of havoc in a community. And one day, one of them died. And so the other one came to the pastor and he said, I would like you to do my brother's funeral. And when you do his funeral, I will give you whatever you want, money, whatever, as long as you just say at his funeral that he was a saint. The pastor thought about it and he said, okay, I'll do it. So he shows up, the community's there, and they're all thinking, oh my gosh, what a despicable person. And the pastor stands up and he says, before you in this coffin is a man who was a hooligan. He was an evil, despicable person. He was a liar. He was a cheat. Many of you were taken advantage by him. He was an adulterer. But in comparison to his brother, he was a saint.
2: <laughs>
0: comparison to his brother, he was a saint. And we all have a tendency to do that, right? You know, there's, there's people that, you know, fall into this kind of sin, but yet we, you know... We we don't say too much about that sin, but oh, somebody that falls into this sin over here, you know, a drunkard will boast of his charity, an immoral man is thankful that he's not a thief, and a profane swearer flatters himself that he's never told a lie. We are always hardest on those who fall in ways that we're not susceptible to. Guys, encourage us. Remember that when you're out, ready to just throw the book at somebody. He is without sin. Cast the first stone, Jesus said to those people that were wanting to stone the adulterous woman. Sin is an attitude, before it's an action, and all of us sort of grade on the curve as it relates to who is sinful and who is not. But the scriptures say that all are lost, all are dead in their transgressions of sin. All of us succumb to the cravings of the sinful nature and. By that are objects of God's subtle hostility and wrath. That is the diagnosis. Now before I get on to some of the more encouraging aspects of being saved by grace through faith, I want us to extrapolate this by going back to the Romans 12 passage and making sure some of the things I said last week are framed up and defined a little bit tighter because, as we mentioned during the announcement time, we are not only a church who is to be a movement in this valley to reach lost people, we are a church to be engaged in a worldwide movement to reach lost people, adults, students, and children around the world. And we have to have a deep, subtle conviction that people far away, as well as people who are near, are lost. And many times, this is what I start to hear in Christian circles these days, is like, well, if people have never heard about Jesus Christ, then they're not going to be held responsible. Or we don't have to maybe get the faith shared in certain places because they've never heard. They get sort of an out. That's not what Scripture teaches And the Apostle Paul was so impassioned to take the gospel around the Mediterranean Sea and beyond in the the known world at that time because he understood before God Almighty that all people are lost and without Christ all will enter not only into a Christless eternity but will live in this temporal life in such a broken and fallen way that this life doesn't fully make sense and they don't find the purpose for which they were created. So let's go back to Romans 12 if you'll give me some of the grace. Romans, uh, I mean Romans 1. Romans 1:18 1, 8, uh, says this: The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth with their wickedness. Since what may be known about God has been made plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And it goes on from there and says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And I quoted it last week, but you read through Romans, and in Romans 1 and into Romans 3 even, and you're going like, this is not a good condition of mankind. And you go, why does he start the letter off that way? How depressing. Well, he knows that we got to get squared away with what reality is and the diagnosis. And so here he's articulating that this weighted hostility of God is upon all the world. It's upon all the world. I want to share with you a term, if you will. It's natural general revelation. Natural revelation is revealed knowledge from our conscience and our nature. The Apostles Paul is saying that everybody in all the world since the creation of time have been able to see God's invisible qualities, and all people are without excuse. So it doesn't matter if someone's ever gotten to them with the scripture or the gospel message of Jesus Christ. All people have been given a certain revelation, and thankfully, that's sweet news. Whether it's looking up in the stars at night or looking you know, deep into a, an ultrasound, you're going like, whoa, there's God. The first astronauts that went around the dark side of the moon when they came back around and they saw the earth for the first time, they didn't have a lyricist there or somebody to write a poem or say something special. An astronaut just broke out and said, in the beginning, God. Why? Because there's this general revelation that says there has to be more. But this is what happens. Even though there's this natural revelation, people need to understand these things i got some points here. People by nature... I'm sorry, let me go back there. People by nature suppress truth about God, and that suppression leads to ungodliness. Ungodliness then leads on to wickedness, and wickedness leads to every kind of evil and depravity. These things are true from what's embedded in the first part of that passage, but then with natural revelation, it goes on and it says this. The truth about God is clearly seen in creation. The truth is available to every person, and the truth gets through to every person. Now, what is that truth? Two facts in particular. Number one, there is an all-powerful God who created the world, His eternal power, In fact, number two, that all-powerful God is the supreme being of the universe. So this is a really great passage for you to learn and memorize and to understand contextually. The Apostle Paul is saying, this is the condition of the world. Whether they're in a Christian nation or not in a Christian nation. The wrath of God, the heavy hostility is upon us because all people suppress truth. And what is that truth? That there is a God who exists. It's the general natural revelation. Now if they would open themselves up to that truth, who knows where that would end up going? and you hear all kinds of interesting stories sometimes of people who have never heard about the good news of Jesus Christ, who, whether through a dream or through a direct person sent to them or something, begin to understand the context of it. But the Apostle Paul really did not believe that people would own up to the truth. They would suppress it because that bent, that sinfulness, the death that's inside of a human being, is in such a manner that they're not going to go that trajectory. So he himself then was compelled. They have enough knowledge, if you will, through his eternal power and divine nature to stand without excuse. In other words, they have enough general revelation, if I can use this word, to damn them to hell or to a Christless life in this world, but they do not have the special revelation to lead them on to faith to deal with their condition. And so let's just define special revelation this way. Special revelation speaks about um, that specific word of Christ that comes through his scripture and through a witness. And that word's going to build upon the general revelation. The general revelation, let me go to Psalms um, chapter 19, says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. The psalmist here declares the general revelation. But there is a need within the heart of man for something more than the general revelation. We get these two quotes, one from Pascal and one from St. Augustine. Pascal says this, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only God the Creator made known through Jesus. And St. Augustine, You have made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. Let's go back to that Ephesians 2 passage now. Ephesians 2, you remember what it said? But as for you, were you dead in your transgressions and sins in the life you once lived? When you lived according to the ways of the world, you lived according to the spirit that's now at work in those who are disobedient, according to the sinful nature, that craving, the desires, and the thoughts, we were by nature objects of wrath. What's the next verse? after the Apostle Paul says that. That's defining general revelation. That's the reality. But, because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Jesus Christ was sinning in this world to deal with the sin condition. He took upon Himself the sin of all mankind, past, present, and future. And obedience was offered up as a sacrifice to deal with that sin. That's why we uphold the cross and then broke the power of sin through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and defeated the adversary. And He has provided a means for us to be changed from that sinful nature. For that sinful nature to be the past identity of who we are. Someone says to me, if you want to have a new relationship with Christ, you have to have a new relationship with sin. You have to understand who you are as a sinful being and who your friends are as sinful beings if you ever are able to break upon them the amazing grace that we were saved by grace through faith and the work that Jesus Christ provided.
2: And so the Apostle Paul, he was passionate. I mean, the Apostle
0: Paul one time told people not to get married. I'm like, what? What's wrong with being married? Nothing. But the man was so single-minded that he thought that would be a distraction to do what? To get the special revelation, the good news to those who were dying and lost forever. And so he was passionate about the lostness of mankind. Can I just ask you this this morning? Are you passionate about the lostness and the brokenness of our world? There's a lot that don't care. A lot that suppress the truth with their wickedness. But there are a lot of people that are just merely lost in the brokenness and they want to be found and we have a means of pointing them there. Maybe you here this morning are a broken, lost person and say, well, it doesn't take me much to admit I'm a sinner. Well, I just want to share with you the good news that you can turn to Christ. He's dealt with the sin issue, but you've got to receive him into your life. And by grace, through faith, you can become a new person. This is the good news. But for us as a body, friends, on the journey that we are as a fresh, I think, new movement of what God's calling us to do as a local body, we have to have a deep conviction about the lostness of man and not just sort of placate everything and say, oh, it's fine, everybody will go to heaven or something. Or there's some other ways, you know, maybe it's just... Uh, there, there's brokenness in people's lives and we have to reckon with it. And we have to have a deep-seed conviction about lostness for our friends, for our community, and for the world. A.B. Simpson, who started the Christian Missionary Alliance movement, of which I've referenced He wrote a lot of hymns. And A.B. Simpson wrote this in a hymn. He said, A hundred thousand souls a day are passing one by one away. In Christless guilt and gloom, without one ray of hope or light, with future darkness as endless night, they're passing to their doom. Do you believe that? I have to ask myself, do I believe that? I close with this story that I came across this week. as. I spend time sometimes just trying to remind myself of people who have really not only had a deep conviction about the lostness of man, but have been willing to pay the price to do whatever it takes to see people discover the amazing grace of our Savior. It was in 1839 that a man by the name of John Williams, I believe he was a Presbyterian missionary with the London Missionary Society, left and he went to an island in the South Pacific an island called Aramongo It was in the Fiji Island area, Australia, New Zealand, down that direction, and it was known that there were lost people here for sure that had never heard the special revelation of Jesus Christ, and so he was passionate to take the gospel to them. But it was also known that there were cannibalistic people there. So he and his colleague, I think his name was Mr. Harris, they arrived uh, in this island at a place called Dillon's Island, um, uh, Dillon's Beach or Dillon's um, Gateway area there, Bay. And um, they met the chief of uh, the natives there. And the chief and the natives came before them and he drew a line in the sand and he said, if you cross this line, you're going to die. Well, they crossed that line and both of them were killed that very day and they were actually eaten. That's a heavy story. Back in those days, it took a while for the Word to get back to the homeland church. And the Word got back and there was another couple that decided that they were being called to go deal with the lostness of this island. The guy's name was um, George Gordon. and George Gordon and his wife, they left and they went there and God gave them permission and grace to be able to work briefly But they, too, ended up becoming killed on that island. Word got back. The next person who felt called to go was a guy by the name of James McNair. James went, and the same fate happened to James. Word gets back after a period of time. And the brother of George Gordon, James Gordon, was single. He decided God was calling him to go to this island. The island had started to get the nickname "Martyr's Island" at that time, and so he goes, and God gives him grace over a period of a few years, actually, and he's able to even translate scriptures, and people come to a few people come to know Christ. But tragically, he was accused of some witchcraft because some kids died in his his work that had measles, and he was killed. Word gets back to this homeland church in Spain, I believe it was. And the mother of both George and James goes to the altar one Sunday morning early. She kneels at the altar in brokenness and she's weeping and some of the church folks gather around the mother. And she turns her head up to them and she says, you need to know that I'm not weeping because I've lost my sons even though their loss is deeply grievous to me. But I'm weeping because I do not have another son to send to the lostness in that island. I'm like, whoa. I don't know that I'm there. But friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ was not taken into some of the dark places of the world, whether it's a cannibalistic island or a dark urban environment or some place that's overseen by rampant uh, fanatic religious people of other stripes God breaks on the heart of people the lostness of the world and then his spirit mobilizes them to go do something about it. And we can be content without tuning our ear to the lostness of mankind, whether it's people overseas or our next door neighbor or their work partner. But if we do that, we're not going to participate in the greatest movement that God desires for you to see. Are you willing, as I asked you last week, to pray, God, break my heart for lost people? That line in the sand was drawn. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come back up this morning and we're going to have a couple songs of worship. And I'm going to do something that I don't want you to do because it's some emotional thing or I shared some emotional stories or something. I want you to be open to what God's speaking to you about in your heart. But I believe in each of our lives there's another line being drawn. And this line's being laid down. And if you cross this line... You're going to die. You're going to die to self-centeredness. You're going to die to your own agenda in life. I remember one time.
2: I was 15. I grew up in Alliance church, so I heard a little about missions. And I was always concerned that I'd be called to be a missionary. Well, there's some
0: things I want to do in my life. But the Spirit spoke to me and said, You've got to cross a line. Is it your life or is it going to be my life? I've been led into ministry because that was God's particular calling for me. God's calling for you may not be vocational ministry or to be a missionary. But I believe there's a line we cross where we say, it's not my life, but it's yours. And that's a line of death. And it's not an easy line to cross. The Father's love is rich, and he desires for the amazing grace that comes through faith in Christ to be shed abroad to a lost world and to the people that you have natural relations with. But you have to choose. You have to
2: choose to cross the line.
0: And so here this morning as we sing and we worship, I'm going to give you the opportunity to cross that line and just come and kneel and pray. Or you can stay in your seats. I mean, it's nothing but a symbolism thing to put some uh, furnace tape, duct tape on the floor. But if the Spirit's speaking to you that you need to be broken for lost people and understand a fresh and new the calling in your life, As an individual, maybe for us as a church to do something about lostness, then I invite you to come and just pray a simple prayer of commitment as you
2: feel led while we sing, and then I'll pray.